welcome back. Uh, it's been about 30 seconds for us, not even. Uh, it may have been a few days for you, I don't know. Uh, but we're back. Uh, I don't think uh, we need to do much introduction here. Uh, this is part two of the last episode you heard uh, about Napoleonic politics, uh, in, or Regency era politics, I should say, in the UK. Um, we've got an 1812 election, we've got an 1818 election. Uh, I'm Malcolm, Declan's going to be back soon. Uh, guest is Hawken, a.k.a. World of Westminster on Instagram, um, an expert in British parliamentary politics. And uh, we, well, just jumping right in, 1812 election. It has been five years <laughs> since the last general election. Uh, mm -hmm. Shortly after his election uh, in 1807, the Duke of Portland, the Prime Minister, resigns because of ill health in 1809 and mm -hmm. dies shortly after. He is then succeeded mm -hmm. by Spencer Percival, uh, mm -hmm. who is not a lord because he is assassinated in 1812. Um, mm. First of all, I'll talk about him for a second. Uh, he brought uh, Viscount Sidmouth, the first Prime Minister we talked about, uh, back into his cabinet. Um, uh, you know, at this point, you can actually really see under Percival the Tories forming uh, as a kind of a unified group. Uh, but mm -hmm. Percival was kind of a cool guy. You know, he didn't really drink, he didn't gamble. Uh, he supported continuing the war against Napoleon no matter the cost. He'd kind of given up on the idea of a negotiated peace. Um, mm -hmm. He also opposed the slave trade uh, and was very charitable. That said, um, he also opposed Catholic emancipation, but like most Tories and many Whigs who weren't the most, most loyal Pittites, like, he was kind of, mm -hmm. it was kind of common there. Um, and yeah. then he is assassinated in 1812, um, and the premiership passes to Lord Liverpool, whose mm -hmm. nomination was supported, this is quite notable, Lord, Liverpool, Lord Liverpool's nomination is supported by all of the Tories and opposed by all of the Whigs. Um, mm -hmm. and so this 1812 election will confirm Lord Liverpool, Liverpool. Sorry, that's a hard word to say. As Prime Minister, <laughs> uh, anyway. So go ahead, uh, fill us in with all our detail. Well, yeah, um, it's been an absolutely chaotic parliamentary term since eighteen oh seven. So Portland had swept in with a yes, as we as we said last time, a de facto majority government. Uh, the Tories were largely unified around him, and you know it. And he promised to prosecute the war, and he did. Um. The only issue was is that out on the continent, uh, Napoleon had actually managed to form an alliance with the Russian Empire in Tilsit in July of 1807. Uh, and this was really bad news for Britain because Russia had actually been one of Britain's staunchest allies in the previous anti-French wars. Um, now, this put Britain in a very difficult position because shortly after that, France, uh, which had created a client state in Spain, then invaded Portugal. Uh, which had been Britain's ally since 1386 and continues to be Britain's ally today. So, you know, if there's any Portuguese listeners listening, then thank you for your staunch support for our country. But fuck um, you for doing Brazil. I'm mad about that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, although I don't think Britain can be absolved on uh, the imperialism front. Oh, I don't even mean, like, creating settler colonies. I just mean, like, specifically Brazil. Oh, I see. I love Brazilians, see. but, uh, and, and I, yeah, I may well come to love Brazil, uh, in future years and specifically after a, a election. Um, mm. but, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan of those well, guys right now. In, in which case then, uh, Britain's Brazil is probably the United States. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, um... The UK was now virtually isolated because Russia had abandoned it. Austria wasn't really in a fit state to do anything. 
Prussia was had essentially been converted into a number of French client states, and Portugal was fighting a war with the French, and it was losing. Um, now, so Portland was sort of... It, there wasn't really a coalition at this point. It was sort of informal engagements with the French, but Britain was very much still at war. Um, things sort of really heated up in April 1809, when Austria made the mistake of forming the Fifth Coalition and hoped to drive the French client states out of Prussia. Um, it didn't work. Uh, Austria actually ended up losing more land uh, when Napoleon forced the Treaty of Schambrun on them in October of 1809. Um, now, 1809 was a big year in Britain too, because in September that year, Viscount Castlereagh, who was Secretary of State for War, and George Canning, who was Foreign Secretary, fought a pistol duel on Putney Heath. Um, uh, this is another thing I should absolutely bring back. Uh, Duels were technically banned uh, under British law, um, and so, of course, the fact that you have two cabinet ministers um, who had disagreed over how to handle uh, Napoleon, because, of course, war and foreign affairs coincided quite heavily in this period, um, were fighting a duel. Neither of them were killed, but it damaged their reputation, it damaged Portland's reputation, and generally it was a bit of a hoo-ha for everyone, sort of like the... 1809 equivalent of the Downing Street Christmas party. Yeah. Um, so Portland resigned as Prime Minister, um, and the fact that he was in ill health and, as Malcolm said, died shortly afterwards, uh, didn't help. Um, but I think he, having done that, uh, now holds the record for the longest gap between premierships, because, as we said in the last episode, he served before William Pitt the Younger, who'd become Prime Minister in 1782 or three. Um, and had now finished being Prime Minister in 1809, so there was, you know, a gap of nearly 30 years between his two uh, terms in office. And yes, Spencer Percival was appointed to replace him. What could possibly go wrong? Um, now, in 1810, things changed again, because Russia withdrew from alliance uh, with Napoleon, and to the uh, French uh, the French government's anger, started trading with Britain. Um, and though Russia and France did not begin war immediately, the tensions were laid for the uh, uh, Franco-Russian War, which, in my historiographical opinion, was the ultimate cause of Napoleon's downfall. No, going to war with Britain was the ultimate cause of Napoleon's downfall. Count on it. Uh, of course, of course. I mean, certainly one could argue about the Peninsular Campaign versus uh, the Franco-Russian War, but yeah. I mean, the fact is that Napoleon lost half of his army in one and half his army in the other, so I mean, either way. <laughs> well, either I think way. the Russian War is definitely more famous as well. Oh, as for sure, for sure. And, al and also, of course, it's a major factor in what is possibly my favourite book, which is One Piece. Mm, I'm very pretentious, so... And I know you're, yeah. like, a fan of Russia, so... I'm a huge proctophile. Uh, so much so I've been accused of being a Kremlin spy. But, yeah. That'd be cool uh, if you were, though. <laughs> Funny you should say that. Um, yeah, so in 1810, Russia had essentially set itself back up to returning to the old sort of conservative alliance with Britain. Um, back home, meanwhile, things were, weren't going that well for the Percival government, because in June 1811, George III suffered... A significant fit of madness. He didn't recover for several days, 
and there were real questions about whether he could be trusted with the responsibilities of the crown. Because this, of course, included a heavy political role. And, you know, was he really fit to appoint ministers and sort of oversee public expenditure and that kind of thing? Uh, and, and, you know, was he mentally capable of doing that? So Parliament appointed his son, the Prince of Wales, future George IV, as regent. And we thus begin the Regency era. Now, the difference between George III and the Prince Regent in sort of governing styles was that George III um, was sort of very much involved with the running of the government. He vetoed Catholic emancipation several times, was very happy to dismiss prime ministers, and yes, had to navigate the sort of waters of which parliamentary ministries were viable and which ones were not quite carefully. Prince of Wales, however, most of the time just didn't care and in fact this sort of marked one of the watersheds in British history because he largely left the run of the country to the cabinet you know this was where powers began to shift from the crown to parliament again and yes not through any sort of popular movement or any important landmark legislation but simply because the king didn't care can you get more British than that um yeah so in May 1812, uh, Spencer first of all was assassinated, and he wasn't even assassinated for like a good reason really. He was assassinated by a disgruntled British merchant who'd been imprisoned by Russia and was annoyed by the fact that Britain hadn't pursued his case uh, to the Russian Empire. And so, as you do when that happens, uh, you go and assassinate the Prime Minister, and you don't just assassinate him anywhere, you assassinate him in the lobby of the House of Commons. And even today, there is a plaque on the floor there, which marks where Percival's body fell after it uh, had an injection of blood. Um, now, Spencer Percival, yes, subsequently died unennobled. Um, and this really shocked Britain because he, in fact, remains the only assassinated prime minister in British history. I don't know if any Canadian prime ministers have ever been assassinated. No, although uh, in the case of uh, Sir Arthur Megan, I wish he was. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm nodding my head right now because I absolutely know what you mean. Yeah, no, he was prime minister from like 1919 to 1921 uh, and was critical uh, in two things, which I think were big mistakes. Uh, which is one, the alignment of Canadian trade away from the rest of the empire and towards America, uh, and right. two, he was also critical um, in getting Britain to dissolve the uh, Anglo-Japanese alliance, which, uh, of course, allowed Japan to go down some pretty <laughs> nasty routes. Um, yeah. But just in general, like, you know how I feel. Like, he was the one who sort of made Canada a vassal state to America instead of a vassal state to Britain. Britain, which was a much, much better choice. For of him. course, of course. It's not like, too late. Yeah, like if you had to choose, you know. Yeah, Britain, obviously. Of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kansuk for the win. Yeah. Well, we dominate that one because we've got the uh, Northwest Passage. It was slightly ameliorated by the fact that it wasn't like, you know, done by a French spy. It was just a sort of like random event, like a crossover episode. And things moved on quite quickly, and he was replaced by the Earl of Liverpool, who is in fact one of our longest-serving Prime Ministers, because he served for 15 years and won four general elections, which is a record that no one has subsequently equaled. So Lord Liverpool is generally quite an interesting person in British history. Um, 
by this point, yeah, everyone had sort of given up on the idea of peace with France. It was essentially them. Um, but, uh, yeah, France wasn't the only international issue, though, because uh, the United States decided to stick its nose in and yeah. uh, invaded Canada in June 1812. And we showed them what's what. Yes, which was an absolutely awful idea. Uh, because, yeah. <laughs> we whooped uh, them. Like, I, we whooped I, them. If I remember correctly, the war didn't change anything, really, did it? Just no, sort of... no territory gained or lost, although we were occupying significant parts of America. Um, oh, and burned down Washington, of course. Well, yeah. Well, actually, no. In all, in all honesty, that was not... That was the British who did that, not us. Um, yeah, yeah. But, like, I, we I'm, say... It, like, I'm taking the credit for that. The people who did lose were Tecumseh's Confederacy, like, these six nations, these mm-hmm. indigenous allies that we had in, like, the Midwest. We wanted to yeah. create, allow them to create their own state. Uh, to mm. form as a buffer between Canada and, and the United States, uh, yeah. and they okay. got sort of eaten up. And so I guess that was the kind of compromise, like we wouldn't take any part of New England uh, if yeah. they... Uh, and we also wouldn't try and establish that state, I guess. But, yeah. like, they were going to lose anyways. There's no way in the 1800s and the, any indigenous uh, groups were going to be back. Yeah, yeah come out on top. Yeah. yeah. So anyways, but yeah. no, we did, we did whoop them, right? Because everyone's like, oh, the Americans are like, oh, well, it was a stalemate. But it wasn't because their goal was to annex Canada, and they didn't. Yeah, same way with same way that Vietnam was a stalemate. Yeah. Yeah, Vietnam. Yeah, exa- exactly. Right. So no, we won fair and square and easily. Um, uh, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So the Americans invaded Canada, which was of course a British colony, that should still be one. Mm. Um, in the War of eighteen twelve, which I think must be one of the most inaptly named wars in all history. Um, but, you know, later on, also in June, Napoleon invaded the Russian Empire. So, you know, 1812 was actually a really, really busy year. Like, this whole parliamentary session was very busy. I used but to think the Tchaikovsky piece year. was about our war. <laughs> uh, honestly, Americans thinking it's all about you. Oh, yeah, there you go. Uh, um, yeah, now, so France was still sort of fighting Britain over in, in in the peninsula. So the Portuguese were fighting back, helped by Britain, and Spain was also sort of rising up in rebellion because Napoleon, I think, had installed his brother as king. And he wasn't very which, good. Yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't a very popular move to begin with. Yeah. But, yeah, so the peninsula war was going on in the west and uh, Napoleon was trying to invade Russia east. And he reached Moscow in, 18, in September 1812, um, but the Russians had abandoned the city, and it is alleged in War and Peace that the Russians had left sort of lots of fuses round, and bearing in mind most of Moscow was w- wooden buildings at the time, uh, which meant that in October 1812 there was a huge fire, and most of Moscow burned down, which left uh, the French army, the Grande Armée, uh, see I speak French, Here you go. Uh, with lack of food, lack of supplies, it was bitterly cold because the winter was setting in, there was, you know, living conditions were very poor, or squalid even, because all the buildings had burned down, and sort of psychologically, historians also think that Napoleon sort of couldn't come to grips with the fact that the Russians had been willing to destroy their own city. It wasn't the capital at the time, but it was sort of like the... um, uh, one sort of like the ancient capital of Russia because St. Petersburg was much more modern. So he retreated. Right. And in some ways, it was probably the retreat that uh, did it for him. But yeah, 
So as Napoleon was retreating, uh, Lord Liverpool decided to seek a mandate for his ministry. And, you know, we sort of went along the classic route at this point. Liverpool um, was promising prosecution of the war, he was promising stability, and he was also promising to sort of keep things in order in Britain. Because uh, late, later on, especially in the run-up to the 1818 election, Liverpool's government did an awful lot of things which we would today consider very authoritarian. Um, so, yes, Liverpool promised order, he promised stability, and what's more, he promised to keep pummeling Napoleon until he was defeated. Um, and, you know, by the time of the 1812 election, Napoleon's defeat did seem in sight because the Russian invasion had been sort of nothing short of an unmitigated disaster. Um, so, yeah, so Catholic emancipation was, again, a sort of side issue, but wasn't really brought up. Um, and, but there was significant domestic unrest because there was a lot of poverty now. There was food insecurity because the French had tried to blockade British trade. And there was also um, disquiet over industrialization in Britain. You've probably heard of the Luddites. Yes, um, of course and how they uh, went up to smash the machines that they uh, saw as having replaced them at their jobs. Um, and well, of course, and then the in the north, there were, like, those semi-Luddites who waved the banner of the Raven King, and, uh, you know, because the return of magic to England uh, had convinced mm -hmm. them that the southern English rule over the north was illegitimate because the Raven King was back, and he was, of course, the legitimate king of the north. Um, and so the course, Luddites uh, up there, of course, carried the white and black banner of the Raven. And this was a very significant issue in northern constituencies, the 1812 yes, election. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the people, a lot of working class people in Britain weren't happy, and Lord Liverpool generally responded to this with quite a firm hand. Um, you know, he sort of suppressed them. At times, he even sent the army in when uh, they, he could spare officers from the continent. Um, and, yeah, so the other thing about Lord Liverpool, which it was arguably sort of the spine of his immensely long uh, tenure as Prime Minister, was that he was able to keep the Tories together as one party. Because by this point they were beginning to sort of break up, because there were people a bit like um, Percival and even Canning, who were sort of considered more liberal or just less reactionary, mm. who were willing to support Catholic emancipation. There was also a reactionary wing, which was much more on the sort of Portland piston which most definitely wouldn't. Right. Um, and Lord Liverpool was very good at sort of holding these two wings together, appointing, you know, balanced cabinets. And he was also, you know, a very good administrator. Uh, you know, it's been said of him that he wasn't a genius, but he was a very good bureaucrat, and that obviously helped him administer the government. That is exactly who we need as a prime minister in, like, everywhere. It's like a guy <laughs> who can well, run a bureaucracy. Yeah, not uh, Mr. Popular, yeah. Um... Yeah, how's Trudeau doing, by the way? Is he has the sheen worn off yet? Which Justin or Pierre? Uh, Justin. I mean, I know that you worship Pierre. But yeah, yeah. Um, Justin. Justin Trudeau. Well, look, we are in. He's got this strategy of just being like completely forgotten. Like he hasn't <laughs> actually done anything since the election. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, I suppose there's nothing to criticize him for. Then. Exactly. Exactly. No, it's smart of him. It's clever. But yeah, no, yeah. nothing. Uh. Nothing special with uh, yeah. my man. True. Ah, okay. Well, my man, Lord Liverpool, <laughs> lots of special things with him. Uh, 
and yeah, so he was actually managing to hold the Pores together, and he was promising stability, and he was promising to defeat France, and won in an absolute landslide. The enfranchised classes were very keen on him. Um, it didn't help, for instance, Lord Grenville still in the Whigs in the House of Lords. By this point, um, uh, the Earl Grey, after whom the tea is named, had sort of emerged as like the next most senior Whig leader, and it was he who largely ran the Whig campaign. Uh, the Whigs were still uh, hugely divided. There was no unifying figure for them like Liverpool was for the Tories. And the public returned the Tories to power with 419 seats, which is almost exactly equivalent to uh, actually what Tony Blair won in the 1997 general election. Really? Um, yeah. Huh. Blair won 418 seats, I think. No, um, hey, hey, Sir Tony Blair. Sir Tony, of course. Can't yes, of course, that of course. Now. Yeah, so Lord Liverpool, uh, the public was like, yes, we will have this. And yeah, so he had his majority, sorry, his ministry had a very large majority, um, but the election was marked by some instance of violence in uh, Ireland, in particular, where Catholic emancipation was, people tried to bring it up, but, you know, the largely Protestant candidates weren't having it. So unfortunately, it was a bit um, violent there. But in fact, the most exciting contest in Great Britain was probably the uh, city of Liverpool, uh, uh, where in fact both candidates for the seat made an awful lot of speeches, um, and they did they you know would sort of actually tour the constituency, get up on a stage, and do a lot of speaking. They're also quite rare for the time um, to do that kind of soapbox campaign almost. And so that was interesting. But overall, yeah, it was very much Lord Liverpool's victory. His administration had a huge majority. And yeah, um, it, set, it set the tone for the rest of his 15 years in power. Well, let's do then one last election for Lord Liverpool. Uh, so three years after this, of course, uh, well, two years, Napoleonic Wars end, and then they start again. Uh, mm. And we absolutely box their shit in uh, Waterloo. Um, mm, yeah, good for us. Um, so then by 1818, yeah, like the Whigs had suffered from weak leadership. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, despite yeah. almost five straight decades of Tory leadership with, you know, a few interruptions, uh, they still kind of fail to capitalize on it. Um, and yeah, as you mentioned, Earl Grey shows up, they don't really get their majority from his Tories, mm -hmm. even though the war has been over for three years. Um, but mm -hmm. 1818 is kind of the first election of the Pax Britannica. And this is the point I wanted to get mm. at because um, Britain at this point has become history's first and only hyperpower. Uh, mm. A superpower so super that there is no place on earth that uh, can really avoid its influence. Um, and it's a largely peaceful in terms of great global conflict. I mean, if you're a Zulu, maybe not so much peaceful when the Redcoats show up, but a largely peaceful mm. in terms of like the great powers. Um, a period, mm. and it of course ends in the lead up to World War One, but um, I I think it's notable because uh, this is a post-war Britain. I think uh, you know, the British public would have been pretty confident that France wasn't mm. going to try again. Um, yeah, yeah, and of course they don't. Uh, so <laughs> you know, it's 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 really this first election where the British voters get to, or at least to the extent that they actually do get to choose got to choose mm. the way forward for Britain uh, yeah. as a 
as this sort of uncontested. I mean, before it was a superpower, but now it's like uncontested superpower. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 so it's interesting because they they elect the Tories again. Uh, yeah. So yeah, why don't we talk a little bit about that and then we'll sign off. Yeah. No, well, you're absolutely right. This was a turning point, not just in British history, but absolutely in international history too. So yeah, after um, the wars of the Sixth and Seventh Coalitions, the Battle of Waterloo, and uh, Napoleon's exile to St. Helena, where he uh, died. Um, L. Yeah, Britain... <laughs> Britain was sort of having to be a bit more introspective, because actually domestic affairs, you know, sort of... When the heat of war had gone, Britain was actually in a pretty poor state generally. Not um, uh, not necessarily in imperial terms, obviously it still had uh, the empire, but um, the, the public purse had basically been drained of all available cash. Um, there was a terrible... And uh, generally... Um, and sort of the industrial unrest continued because uh, people were sort of being put out of jobs and there was nothing else for them to do. And yeah, so it was like the transition from super to hyperpower. There was also a sort of transition from being an agrarian society to a more industrial society. And that sort of bled through into electoral politics because it meant that uh, uh, people... Yeah, people were essentially being forced out of the countryside into the cities, and the cities weren't really growing in a very controlled way, they were growing in a very chaotic way, and there was a lot of poverty and insecurity there. Um, but Britain was, on the other hand, now the world's undisputed power, because France uh, had been defeated, and at the Congress of Vienna in 1815, it was very much Britain, who, which was represented by Castlereagh, um, which sort of had the most influence in drawing the new boundaries. Um, interestingly, Castlereagh actually pressed for less harsh France, uh, states like Prussia and Austria wanted, because um, he thought, in, in some ways he was already looking ahead, and he actually feared the influence of uh, the Russian Empire, and he wanted a sort of, not ultra strong, but, you know, a decently strong France to provide a counterweight uh, to the Eastern powers. Right, this um, is like a classic British thing, is that they will completely ignore Europe until somebody gets too strong and they'll come and knock them off, but they'll just use that time in between to focus on global affairs. And so if they can, if they can delay the uh, rise of Russia and their inevitable war with them, which yeah. obviously wasn't inevitable because Germany rose quicker... Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a good thing. I actually didn't know that Castlereagh was from Londonderry. There are a lot of, like, Irish people who were uh, important yeah, in British exactly. politics at the time. Because next right, episode Castle- we're going to get to uh, to Lord Wellington. Mm. Well, Castle- Castlereagh, yeah, he was a sort of um, Irish Protestant. That's why he was appointed Chief Secretary of Ireland back in the, in the 1790s, was because um, Pitt thought he might be able to sort of... You know, Chief Secretary of Ireland was a bit of a thankless cabinet role because obviously most Irish people hated the British administration. But Castlereagh being Irish, Pitt thought he might uh, not his umpire, which uh, was absolutely hated by both the Irish and the British publics. Um, despite, you know, in some ways his service to the country is quite notable. But he was incredibly unpopular, especially um, during this uh, term, because I believe he served as Secretary of State for Home Affairs. Yes. 
Um, yeah, so what I've got here is that, uh, yeah, he became unpopular at home because uh, the opposition didn't like his support for sort of perceived repressive European governments, and the public didn't like yeah. his handling of the divorce of His Majesty King George IV and Queen Carolyn, uh, and uh, also yes. the repressive measures that Lord Sidmouth, your recurring character, uh, had taken against <laughs> these, uh, these Luddites, uh, and so yeah. he killed himself. Yes, in 1822, yeah. yeah. There's also, I think, a theory that he may have been uh, homosexual, um, which probably contributed to immense mm. personal strain, but I, I, I don't know if it's been confirmed or not. But... Yeah, I mean, that's a yeah. classic thing where the... I think it's like the British euphemism is he died without marrying is for a homosexual, but it's like the type of thing <laughs> well, where historians will either married, yeah. Yeah, pretend that someone was homosexual and we can't know, or pretend yeah. that someone was straight when it's very clear they were homosexual. Oh, they were roommates, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so was that it? So, well, I was just uh, picking up, yeah. So at the Congress of Vienna, Castlereagh sort of constructed the balance of power in Europe, which still left Britain as the most important uh, country on the world stage. But, you know, it's ironic that because Britain was having a terrible time at home, um, and the Liverpool Ministry was generally responding quite repressively. So um, he sent in the army, he held rioters without charge, he imprisoned and sometimes even executed people without trial, he imposed restrictions on free speech. Um, the radical, again, capital R radical, press was especially targeted. A lot of radical newspapers were shut down or otherwise censored. Um, you know, so he was, you know, he took the law and order thing to, uh, you know, sort of draconian state where, um, yeah, sort of any sort of dissent had to be crushed. And the dissent was coming out now because the war had, for the good or the um, worse, had sort of united the British public. But when that fell away, things sort of went back to normal and normal wasn't very nice because a lot of people had sort of been caught in the gulf between um, the new industrial capitalism and the sort of old agrarian feudalism you know this election sort of took place in that era and lord liverpool helped to steer the country through it but these repressive measures measures did make him popular with uh, the enfranchised electorate um and his sort of political skills of running the country of administering uh, bureaucracy and of course continuing to hold the tories together because they did collapse after he resigned um, just all went in his favour. And the biggest thing that hurt his ministry was um, uh, was actually corruption. Uh, there were accusations of corruption by the Whigs about uh, wasteful public spending, and that hurt him in a lot of uh, urban constituencies. Right. He was unpopular in a lot of urban constituencies because they were most uh, mostly where the riots were taking place anyway. But he still won 374 seats, and the Tories had a majority of 90 over the Whigs. Um, but the election was also notable that a lot of people were elected who aligned with neither the Tories nor the Whigs. This included a fairly substantial radical bloc, but also a lot of sort of crossbenchers who were members of local constituency elites or whatever. And um, they had 109 seats in total. But yeah, overall, Lord Liverpool sort of had this competence, he had this pragmatism, but he also had a very firm hand, and he got the credit for it, and um, yes, he won with quite a substantial majority, reduced, but, you know, still very much a strong mandate. 
And obviously it wasn't a uh, a sign of as much weakness in his administration considering how long he would he would go on. Well, we're going to wrap this up. Before we before I wrap up the episode, I want to read out uh, a very short poem by uh, by Byron uh, about uh, Castlereagh. Uh, listen to this. Oh, yes. Posterity will ne'er survey a nobler grave than this. Here lie the bones of Castlereagh. Stop, traveler, and piss. <laughs> yes, I know that one, yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, yeah, there's your... Uh... Castlereagh was really unpopular. Yeah, yeah. Well, so is uh, a lot of people around that age. Like, I remember reading some things that the newspaper said about uh, King Charles... Uh, sorry, uh, King James IV when he died. Um mm. And it was uh, not not great, not great. Um, no. George the Fourth, sorry. Anyways, yeah. Uh, we will probably want to have you back. Uh, I'll talk to you about that. But thank you uh, very much uh, for coming on. Um, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, for the listeners, again, you can find Hawken at World of Westminster on Instagram. W O R L D O F W E S T m-i-n-s-t-e-r you can find us at juno beach pod on twitter at j-u-n-o-b-e-a-c-h-p-o-d uh and you'll find our next episode when declan gets his recording equipment back we're gonna do a kind of a late new year's episode we're gonna go through month by month 2021 what the funny things that happened were uh and we're gonna do some predictions for 2022 but until then i've been malcolm thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time